morning harvest. Love to add my word of welcome to those who came uh, before me. It's always a joy to, uh, to get to worship together and to be in the house of the Lord. Um, so grateful to be here. It's an honor to stand here. Don't consider myself worthy uh, to be here, but excited for the opportunity to testify what God has done in my life. You know, most days I, I feel like Moses, rarely eloquent and asking the Lord to send someone else. And so we'll just be asking God to speak today. My name's, uh, my name's Pace McKee. If you're new here, or you're visiting with us, I serve as our, our family pastor and one of our elders here at Harvest. This is a gospel-driven, disciple-making church that cares deeply about families and missions and, and prayer and authentic community and, and church planning and diversity and expository preaching. And that last one is what I've been tasked with today. So if you wouldn't mind grabbing your copy of God's Word, we are in the first letter of Peter. We're going to be beginning chapter 2 today. Our primary text will be verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read it. And if you wouldn't mind standing one more time, just in honor of God's Word, as we read verses 1 through 3. Therefore... Putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Well, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I just ask that, uh, that you would speak. God, I ask that you would move in this place, God. I ask that you would think with my mind and speak with my voice. Father, we ask that your word will do nothing other than what it has promised us. It will do to be alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce as far as the division of soul and spirit that it might judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Father, we are not hidden from your sight. May we be open and laid bare before you. Speak now. I'll be so very careful to give you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hey, listen, the structure of our passage today is, uh, is rather unique. I think what we'll find here in these three verses is one singular sentence that we could perhaps divide up into four sections, four phrases, four clauses. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to use these clauses, these phrases to help teach through the word. And I think by the end of our time together, I pray by the end of our time together, they'll all fit together like a beautiful puzzle and you will see the, uh, the beauty of God's word and how uh, glorious it really is. So let's just begin with the central uh, idea behind the text, the central admonition behind the text. We'll see it in verse and I'll read it to you once more. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. I think this is the primary uh, command that Peter is trying to get across to us. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. You might look in your Bible 
And your Bible might say long for the pure spiritual milk. Or maybe like my translation, it says long for the pure milk of the word. What's going on here? Uh, Well, translators have to make choices as they move and as they translate. And sometimes words um, are, are difficult to relate. And so what's happening here is some people are referring to that milk as the word of God. Other translators refer to it as um, a God himself. It is his kindness. It is his character. And full disclosure, I, I think it is the word of God. The translators that think it's the word of God, what they're doing is they are reading up the page to chapter 1, verse 23. A text that we had uh, last Sunday from Kenan where it said that you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is the, what? The living and enduring word of God. And so we can understand how these translators might come to this conclusion. They read this verse that we've been born again, and they connect that word born again in verse 23 with our word here in verse 2, like newborn babies. And thus they think Peter's just carrying this, this idea forward, and thus it is the uh, living and enduring word of God, verse 23, is the milk, okay? And thus, voila, you get the translation, long for the pure milk of the word. Now, other translators on the other side of the coin, what they're doing, instead of reading up the page to 123, they're actually reading down the page to 2-3. They see that reference in your Bible that says, tasted the kindness of the Lord, and they connect tasted to milk because you, you taste milk, and thus they come to this idea that it is, it is the kindness of the Lord. It is his character. Well, what, what do we do with this tension? Well, I don't really think there's much of a tension here at all. Because either way, you end up in the word of God seeking the heart of God. You see, the word of the Lord carries you to the Lord of the word. And so Peter says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word. This is the central admonition of the text. But look carefully and notice something. Peter does not say, read the word. That's 1 Timothy 4.13. He does not say, study the word. That's 1 Timothy 2.15. He does not say meditate on the word. That's Joshua 1, 8. He does not say preach the word. That's 2 Timothy 4, 2. He does not say examine the word. That's Acts 17, 11. He doesn't say hide the word in your heart. That's Psalm 119, 11. All of those things are great and healthy. But what is the central admonition here? What does Peter say? What does he charge us to do? Long for it desire it. Now that that might sound a little far-fetched to you. Long for the pure milk of the word. That is an imperative. That is a command. Harvest Church, how do you command a desire? How do you command an affection? Or better yet, how do you obey a command to feel what you do not feel? Is Peter not, that, that's not how it works. You might say, Pace, my whole problem 
is that I don't desire. I don't have the strength. Does he not know? You can't command an affection. If I longed for the word, I'd read the word, right? The problem is I don't long for it. Valid point. Commanding a longing, commanding a desire, well, that's like telling dry bones to live. That's like telling a blind man to see. That's like telling a leper they're cleansed or a lame man to stand up and walk. That's like telling a teenage Pace McKee enslaved in sin, you're free. Does anyone know a man who can do that? I do. I know a man, the God-man, a man who sticks closer than a brother. He holds the power not just to command an act of the hands or an act of the body that could be done by nothing more than pure discipline. College students all across America are gathered on university campuses around their humanities professors who are reading the Bible, teaching the Bible, examining the Bible, studying the Bible, yes, even memorizing the Bible, all you need is a little discipline to do that. But I know a man who can command not just an act of the will, but an emotion of the soul. And that man says, long for it. He says, desire it. Go for it. So if you're tempted to kind of read this passage and just throw up your hands and say, well, I, I don't know what you want me to do. That's just not who I am. Like some sort of spiritual fatalism, might I remind you that the God of the Bible has the power to move in your life. He is an equipping God. He can equip you. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to what? To fulfill the law. You see, when we know him in repentance and faith, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us. You see, in legalism, the law is my master. In license, the law is my enemy. But in liberty, the law is my friend. Why? Because it lifts me up. I am empowered by the Holy Spirit. You see, the law says go. The law says work. The law says do. The law says run. Run, pace, run. The law commands. But the law alone is void of power. It has no power for me. I cannot run. It gives me neither feet nor hands. Yet when the Lord commands desire, verse 2, his kindness lights my heart afire, verse 3. You see, his kindness enables me. The gospel carries with it a power for desire, a power for longing. So now begotten by the Father, verse 23, I lay aside such poor desires, verse 1. You see, just as important as hearing we are to long for the pure milk of the word is the confidence that when God commands a thing, he will not command us in vain. He does not speak words that just fall on the ground with no power to bring them to pass. The gospel enables us to do a thing and to feel a thing that which we did not previously feel or do. 
As the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O God. We hear that verse and we get this beautiful picture of a deer panting and longing for the cool, rushing waters of a mountain stream. We think it belongs on a postcard that you might find in a gift shop at one of those national parks or cross-stitched onto a pillow that Hobby Lobby sells for $19.99. But I assure you, that is not a picturesque panting. That's not a beautiful panting. That longing is not always clean and beautiful. Sometimes it's ugly. So lean in, Peter says. Long for it, pray for it, and believe where God commands a thing, he delivers a thing. Now, how are we to long? For the pure milk of the word. Well, what's the text say? Like newborn babies long for their mother's milk. Instinctively, eagerly, incessantly, right? He says long for it. The Christian should desire the pure milk of the word knowing that it is sufficient and essential for his or her growth. And by the way, that's not a slight here. That's not a slight at these Christians that they're writing to. Don't confuse it with uh, 1 Corinthians 3. The, The term newborn babies here, that's not set in opposition of a mature man. That's that's Ephesians 4. What Peter is saying, he's not talking to new Christians or immature Christians here. Instead, he's giving us an analogy for all all Christians on how we ought to long and desire God's word like newborn babies. Now, by what interval do newborn babies long for the pure milk? Every couple hours. By what intensity do newborn babies long for the pure milk? Enough to keep you up at night. He says, long for it. Desire it. Desire the pure milk. Peter is talking about the inerrant, infallible, inspired, authoritative word of God. It is pure. The Bible is true truth. There's a war going on in our world. The battleground is our home and the issue is truth. Satan's chief weapon is deception. Recently read a book by a well-known Memphis pastor. He said, the devil would rather peddle a lie than a barrel of whiskey. I got a good laugh out of that. But hey, harvest kids, harvest students, don't miss this. This is important. Satan would rather get you to believe a lie than to do a wrong thing. Why? Why? Well, because a lie is the most dangerous thing on earth. It is antithetical to God who is truth and whose words are truth. Satan is a pusher of lies because he knows that the thought comes first and then the deed. The battle is for truth. Today we carry around computers in our pockets, but we're becoming roadkill on the information highway, constantly bombarded by deception. Instagram and Facebook posts that peddle a lie, TikToks that share a half-truth, News outlets and newspapers that share columns and op-eds that masquerade as news. Where are we to find what is true? Only in the word of God. It never changes. It is true truth. It is the only real truth. We must remember 
that we are elect exiles, sojourners in this land. Our culture is telling us that God is obsolete and therefore his word is obsolete. But I'm here to tell you, his word is not obsolete, it's absolute, absolutely true, absolutely necessary, absolutely pure. You know, I've known people who will drink sour juice, stale coffee, rotten tea, or flat soda, but no one who will drink spoiled milk. It is to be pure. In any pastor, teacher, author, professor who tells you otherwise, who waters down the truth of God's word, ought to be ignored. It is pure. And since I'm the family pastor here, let me get on my soapbox for just a minute. Dads, the Bible always puts the responsibility on handing and passing down truth on our shoulders. We cannot punt the ball to our wives on this one. We cannot pass the ball to their schools, their teachers, their coaches, or even the great children's and student ministries of this church. You see, it is up to us dads to pass on the truth like arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior are children's of one's youth. Now, let me be clear, dads. You want to be that mighty warrior? You have to develop your own spiritual maturity, but at the same time, you must shape your children, twigs into arrows, Children are not born arrows. They're born twigs, twisted by sin from their mother's womb. And the Bible tells us we should train them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And by the way, arrows aren't meant to be collected in a quiver. They're meant to be projected into a lost and dying world. And Peter says, long for it. And since I'm meddling, let me meddle already some more. Harvest Church, we would not send our elementary kids to bed having eaten donuts for dinner. But we'll send them to bed without spending a minute drinking from the pure milk of God's word. We would not dream of letting our preteens drive a car but we'll put them behind the steering wheel of a phone that will take them to an internet highway that makes even the most dangerous roads look safe. We would not dream of sending or letting our junior high kids skip school because they woke up tired. But when it comes to Sunday worship, well, they need the rest. We would not dream of letting our high school kids skip a football practice because they didn't feel like it. But when it comes to Bible study, well, there's always next week. We must do better. We must long, Peter says, for the pure milk of the word. We must teach our kids to long for the pure milk of the word. And they long for it. What's it say? When they taste it and when they see us depend on it every day of our lives. So we have a command. Long for the pure milk of the word. But the word must destroy some things first. You see, this is a two-front war. There's the, there's the give me this desire, but there's also the rid me of this desire. How do I know that? We'll look at the second section of the passage today, reading from the beginning. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies long for the pure milk 
You see what that first phrase, what I just read to you, that's called a participle. Putting aside is not really a verb. It's a participle that's borrowing the imperative force of the verb to long. That's why I think these verses are actually one sentence. That's a participle. A participle often looks like its own verb or its own command, but it's actually inextricably linked to the verb and command to long right here. Peter's saying, you cannot long for the pure milk of the word without putting aside these five things. You see, just like when your kids came in from sledding two weeks ago, right? What did they do? They laid aside all their winter garments. They piled 10 feet high in your entryway or your laundry room. That's the idea behind this word, putting aside. It's taking off an exterior garment, laying it aside because it's been dirtied or soiled. And harvest, don't miss the therefore. The reason we can put aside all malice and the like, the reason we can do that is captured in that therefore. What is it referring to? Well, that was Kenan's sermon last Sunday, was it not? It is the new life that believers enjoy by God's grace. They have been begotten by God by means of his word. And now they are to put aside all that quenches love for him in love for another. This is a daily thing, putting it aside. Why? Let me illustrate it this way. I used to live in Houston and in 2004, the uh, New England Patriots played the Carolina Panthers in uh, the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 38. The game is uh, famous for, another, for a number of reasons. It's infamous for its halftime performance. But there was a moment right before the third quarter started when all the referees had walked out onto the field. The players had warmed up and they were lining up to kick uh, to kick off. And one of the referees kind of walked out there to the 35-yard line. He put a whistle in his mouth. And right when you would have expected him to blow that whistle to signal the start of the game, he put his hands on his hips and ripped away all of his exterior garments, leaving nothing behind but a golden swimsuit. Now, you might be wondering, why, why did that referee have on a golden swimsuit under his uniform? And I assure you, everyone else was thinking the same thing for about 45 seconds while that referee river danced on the Super Bowl field. What happened there? Of course, the answer, that was no referee at all, which begs the question, how did that man get on the field of the Super Bowl, one of the most secure athletic events of our time, certainly following September 11th? Well, in the aftermath, we found out. You see, a few weeks prior to the Super Bowl, he contacted the NFL. He said that uh, American football was becoming popular in his country, and he wanted to start a league. And the National Football League sent him not one, but two officially licensed NFL referee uniforms. And so he entered that night with a ticket he watched the first half of the game. He overpaid for his nachos at the concession stand. He enjoyed the halftime entertainment. And when the referees walked out onto the field for the third quarter, he simply followed them out and no one said a thing. Why? Well, he, he looked like a referee. 
He wore what referees wore. He had the equipment the referees carry. He did what referees do right up until the point where he, to, to steal a term from our text, he put aside that uniform and showed us who he truly was. And so it's important for us, Harvest Church, when the world looks at you, when the world looks at this church, what do they see? Do they see a group of people who have put aside the outer garments of malice and hypocrisy and envy in order to shine forth the new birth that Christ has created in us? Does your lost neighbor see the kindness of God transmitted to you by the word of God that wells up into a love of God reflecting, albeit poorly, the character of God? Or do they see these five vices that tear at the fabric of this church? You see, we want to be an authentic community. These five vices will tear us down from that. God's redemptive work is to restore us to right relationship with him and right relationship with one another's. And these five we must put aside to do that. What are they? There is all Malice. What is, what is that? What is malice? Malice is the desire to harm other people. As the saying goes, uh, revenge is sweet. But not to the Christian, it's not. You see, to the Christian, how can I have vengeance on my fellow man when Christ has put away my sin? You see, now for the Christian, forgiveness is sweet and vengeance is loathsome. So he says, get rid of Malice. How much of it? All of it. There is all deceit. Your Bible might say guile. What's that? That's uh, the best way to think about that. That's a fish hook, a baited fish hook. The fish thinks he's about to get dinner, but in reality, he's about to become dinner. That's, that's the idea. This is the person who, who shaves the truth. Seth Jewell captured that idea perfectly in our summer series, right? Someone who shaves the truth. It's crafty and cunning, but it's despicable. And Peter says, put it aside. How much of it? Well, all of it. All of it. There is hypocrisy. For whatever reason, there's no all here, like there is with malice and deceit. But that word right there, that's actually in the plural. Better translated, hypocrisies. This is what Kennan talked about last Sunday when he shared about the actors who donned the mask to perform in theater. This is a dangerous one. It's embarrassing to admit, but uh, this week in my office, I, I took my legal pad and sketched out a definition for all five of these. And when I had finished, I was reading and kind of praying through the list. And I noticed that I had defined every one of them in context of something that had happened to me. In all five definitions, I was on the receiving end of malice and envy and slander. You know what you call that? Hypocrisy. Wretched man that I am. Always seeing the speck in my brother's eye, but ignoring the plank in my own. Get rid of it. Put it aside. There is envy. Also without an all. Also in the plural. Talk to a Greek scholar. I don't know why. Envy is the privilege of some, or or envy is the desire for some privilege that someone else has. Typically coupled with the resentment that they have it and you don't. And Peter says, put it aside. And finally, there is all slander, literally 
talking down another person so as to deflect attention from your own failings. Get rid of it. How much of it? All of it. You see, these five, they interfere with the activity of love. Love does not act from spite. It acts for the good of another person. Love does not practice cunning. It is open-handed and honest. Love does not wear a mask for selfish motives. It is gracious and generous in all its dealings. Love does not desire to be better than other people. It rejoices in the success of other people. Love does not destroy other people's reputations. It is glad to give them praise. You see, sometimes children have no appetite because they've been eating all the wrong things. And Peter says, hey, put these wrong attitudes aside because they hinder your appetite for spiritual growth. They will stunt your growth. And by the way, don't be like me. I'm tempted to lay them aside, but leave them close enough to pick them back up when it's personally advantageous. Peter said, no, no, you put them aside. You cultivate an opposite character, love and generosity and discipline. In short, Peter is saying, you see, new morals ought to follow the new life that you have become, begun by faith in Christ through the living and enduring word of God. Put aside these five so that the world might know that you have What's it? Tasted the kindness of the Lord. His point is these five cannot flourish in the same heart as someone who has tasted the kindness of the Lord. They will simply contradict each other. And by the way, there's no passivity here in the pursuit of Christian holiness. When it snowed two weeks ago, you had a choice. Actively shovel your driveway or passively stand by as the, snow, or as the sun melted that snow. And Peter is telling us, dear Christian, grab a shovel. Very quickly, third section. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Harvest Church, men and women, we awaken our longing. We awaken our desire for God's word with a taste. That's why they call it an appetizer. You say, well, Peter, Peter is saying, because God's love and kindness is the source of our love and kindness. You see, God's message of love and kindness is what kindles our desire for love and kindness. What quickens the heart and the desire for the life-giving word of God? And Peter says, a taste. Taste the kindness of the Lord. Advertisers will spend millions of dollars getting a taste of a Coke or a coffee or adult beverage into your mouth because they know if they can get you to taste it, you'll be addicted to it. You'll keep coming back to it. $5.6 million for 30 seconds of airtime this year in the Super Bowl. Y'all, Madison Avenue, they know what they're doing. And Peter's saying, hey, you read the word until you taste the kindness of God. I think too many of us read the word improperly. We're, we're, we're waking up, we're reading 10 sentences, we're closing it and walking about. 10 sentences, it's no wonder we didn't catch the storyline. 
There's not a literature teacher in the city who would say that's a good idea. And Peter's saying, you read it until you taste the kindness of God. Reading the Bible is addictive when we taste his kindness. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. Or do you think lightly of his kindness? Kindness of God is a heavy thing, not a light one. There's, a, there's a, a story in architecture about a billionaire philanthropist who wants to put his hometown on the map. And so he commissions a, a brilliant, ambitious young architect to build a library in his hometown, the likes that no one has ever seen. It took years to design and, and years to build. But at the end, there was a beautiful library. It was world-renowned, limestone ex- exterior, Massive rotunda, soaring beams, oak trim carpentry, marble staircase. It was beautiful. It was a spectacle. And then he went out and he, he, he gathered an unrivaled collection of books and art. And he filled that library on opening day. It was a sight to see, a testament to modern design and, and modern engineering. Unending rows of books and unparalleled beauty. But about a year after the use, the head librarian started to notice a few cracks in the plaster walls. A few years later, some, some cracks in the marble staircase. They commissioned the architect to come back to try to figure out why the, the building was sinking. Finally, the architect realized he had forgotten to account for the weight of the books. Eventually, the library was condemned. Harvest Church, my fear is that I might forget about how heavy this book is, that I might think so lightly of this book, a book in which we can taste the kindness of the Lord, a book that will keep me from sin, but sin will keep me from this book. And so Peter says, taste it, read it, long for it, because it's here that you find personal fellowship with the Lord. Taste it. And that's just an idea of trying to capture our faith. You know, in, in Scripture, faith is all the senses. Faith is sight. Look unto me, and ye be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no one else. Faith is hearing. Incline your ear. Come to me here in your soul shall live. Faith is smelling. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes. Faith is touch. A woman who had been bleeding for 12 years come up to Jesus and she touched the fringe of his cloak and he turned and saw her and said take courage daughter your faith has healed you faith is taste how sweet are thy words to my taste sweeter than honey in my mouth what is the result what is the result of all this tasting and longing and putting aside we'll look at the final section so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation quite fitting In a context of new birth and newborn babies is a reference to growth. Christians grow in the gospel. We never leave it behind. We're always in it. That is our source of growth. A Christian life, sometimes it feels like a battle between living as we truly are, children of God, elect exiles, and living how we used to be, right? enslaved to sin, a citizen of this world. How do we grow in respect to salvation? We fix our eyes on Jesus is what this says. He, I think he is the it in this phrase. Jesus is the word. He is the kindness of God. He is, you may recall, he is our living hope. Ours is a sure hope, but it's also a future hope. 
We, we long for it. We don't merely wait for it. We grow towards it like a flower who grows towards the sun. I went to college at the University of Kansas, and just outside of Lawrence, there were these massive sunflower fields. And those sunflowers, what do they do? They face the sun all day long. They grow towards it. I think that's what Peter's trying to capture for us. We grow towards it. And just in case... You think that that's some work of your own? That word grow right there, that's in the passive voice. We are grown as we experience the pure milk of the Lord and the kindness of God. It's passive voice, better translated, so that it may grow you. The word grows you. His kindness grows you. You see, Paul may plant and Apollos may water, but the Lord gives the growth. And so I just want to talk real quick as we conclude for anyone in here who has never tasted the kindness of God, you've never longed for the scriptures like that, you've never experienced that relationship, I want you to know a few things. The Bible tells us that God is a creator God. He is righteous. That means he is pure and holy in character. He is set apart. There's no blemish in him. Meanwhile, humanity, humanity is spiritually bankrupt. No one of us is righteous. It even says our most righteous acts are filthy. They're laced with malice and, and envy and hypocrisy. But God, who is loving and just, he wants to save us from our sin. And so God sent Jesus to die on the cross and purchase our forgiveness, simultaneously reconciling us to the Father because he's loving and satisfying our debt because he's just. We are saved by grace and therefore God can say, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Come, you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You see, the gospel is addressed to us who have no money. We have no good works in and of ourselves, and yet we're still invited to, into salvation. That is his kindness towards us. The only thing you need is need. So if that's you, I would just challenge you, believe in the Lord and you will be saved. And you too will be putting aside sin and longing for the pure milk of the word as you taste his kindness. Why don't we pray towards that end? Oh, well, Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come to you now. And we ask you that you would um, give to us what you have commanded Father, we praise you for your word. We thank you for your kindness. Father, as your children, we pray that we might grow up in both by your spirit and by your power. In Jesus' name, amen.